0: Hey everybody team king from king sports international today we have on our live chat victoria Felker. victoria can you hear me i can hear you excellent i well, appreciate you taking the time to join us Felker. we have quite a few people who have also joined us on a call and i'll just let them know that i will be uh, taking your questions at any time during the call i know victoria's happy to do so as well you have an a, a electronic button there that you just put your hand up and when i do take you off mute if you can control your own mute button for background noise. That would be much appreciated. So Victoria, we got to meet at um, the great Swiss event. How did you find Swiss?
1: Oh, it was incredible. Ken Kanakin is just he's hes the, like all the good things about the industry and the world all wrapped up into one human being and he just puts on such a phenomenal event that truly is like the, the meeting of the minds. Um, and it, I mean I'm still on a buzz from it. I'm still following up. I'm still trying to put everything together that I learned over those like four days.
0: Yeah, you summed it up so well. I'm sure people think we must have a bromance or something going on because I've been <laughs> sing, sing, singing his praises for nearly twenty years as a result of that event.
1: Yeah, he, uh, he is just he's. I mean, and he's already starting for the next Swiss. Like he's already got all these ideas, and it's just it's so. It's so beautiful to see that uh, and see the like the, just the camaraderie um, that's at Swiss. I I get, I know I'm I'm newer in this whole um, I was gonna say the enterprise of the fitness industry, but also like academia, and you just don't get it anywhere else. Um, you don't get that level of learning at all. So I just, oh, Swiss, what a beautiful event.
0: And 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 you 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 smart on that because. Oh. It reminded me a lot of the the NCA events of the 1980s when it was smaller and people cared and, and, and intentions were better. And what mm. I find with most organisations that put on shows these days is that, that there's an intent that goes beyond the 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 learning. It's, it's an intent that overshadows the learning. It's an intent that uh, is not as you know pure. I know I'm using all these utopian words, but it's you know I've just got to call it as it is. It's it's just so refreshing to go in an, in an environment where a a genuine person is running there's no political overtones there's no commercial intent like he's not trying to make you know obviously you want to you want to be commercially viable but he's not trying to make a profit per se Uh, and no one no one's there really pushing uh, a political agenda and there's no ego it's and when i say ego i mean i've been to events where the 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 lapel badges go down to their groin you know what i'm talking (laughs) about yes You get in the lift with them, you wonder whether you should be talking mm-hmm. because, you know, have you, have you had enough experience? And, uh, you know, I've been around this industry for nearly 40 years. Next year my 40th year. And, um, you know, I'd, I'd be more than happy to be a fly on the wall at Swiss with people with far less experience because it's really about, you know, being respectful and, and learning from everybody.
1: Mm-hmm. No, absolutely. Um, and it's also, I think, one of the things I love about it is that it breaks down the disciplinary boundaries that have been kind of er- not only just erected, but instituted over the years. Um, you have the, the hard kind of science, the exercise physiologist, um, mixing with more of the, the alternative medicine. I hate the word alternative, complementary mm-hmm. medicine I prefer, but um, a- a- alongside the, the lifters, alongside other types of practitioners, um, you've got just such a melting pot. And it's something that is so, so special because I know within like my own work, that's such a, it's all well, even in, in, even in university, um, it's just such a massive, massive issue where you have that divide between not only disciplines, but um, just ideologies, ideas, the way we look at the body. And it's such a, it's such a fragmented um fragmented world right now uh especially within sport and sport science so it's just such a it's such a nice and amazing nice is such a just a not a great word to use but like i'm speechless like i'm usually not speechless with these things but it uh my hat goes off to ken um i've got nothing but gratitude for him for what he's doing and what he's doing to i think to everybody who attends and everybody that's touched by swiss is it's breaking down those constructed boundaries around the body around performance, around sport, around what it means to be an athlete. And it's something that is just so unique that I wish everybody could learn, everybody could see. Um, because it is, like you said, it's just got the purest intentions to actually put athletes, instead of us breaking athletes, bring them back together, <laughs> putting a little bit of health back into the equation, redefining what it means to be a performance athlete, redefining what it means to train, an athlete or trained general population um and also just like a giant think tank where we can re- really just go there and kind of shoot ideas off of um, our colleagues and friends
0: so the holistic nature of the venue is, is is unique and uh, i know when i started presenting this from 20 years I, I started in the in the the therapy track i mean the rehab track which was pretty unusual for a physical preparation coach it's been more of accepted content these days but as you said that the the, the it breaks down those those gaps, and when you when you understand the the depth of the knowledge available in each of the disciplines uh it 's a humbling experience because you know, life will be a continual learning experience, and that that learning then can be taken and applied to the benefit of the of the end user Oh, mm-hmm. well, absolutely which brings you to the to the party so tell us give us your background start from the early as you're willing to start
1: <laughs> start from the beginning of me well i um Oh gosh, I have always been in some tor- like form of physical activity, but my roots were actually in classical ballet. So I started dance when I was two and a half years old and I was very uncoordinated to this day. I la- laugh. There's a video of me that I couldn't even skip, um, but I pushed through and I actually started competing um, when I was about five. I did these are the Royal... Academy of Dance. I did all of my exams. Um, really, that was my world. Uh, but also had my own injuries that came along with that. Um, I like to push, and I like to push hard. And I am, as you as you saw it, so I am not exactly look like I've got a build of a dancer, especially classical ballet. I'm five foot one on a good day, and I'm very stocky. Um, but it was my my muster and my might that kind of pushed me through. But when I was about 12 years old, I developed a really bad eating disorder, um, to try to fit that kind of classical ballet mold. But that's also when I found other forms of physical activity. And now I, because of my dance and because of the level I was at, I didn't do physical education. Um, I was exempt because those were the hours that I got to go to my studio or there were hours that I kind of had a study block, especially like in high school to make up for the time that was spent after school dancing at my studio. So I, I mean, I can't catch a ball. I can't throw a ball. Uh, The basic motor skills that we associate with like the sporting world, I I still struggle with, and I'm almost thirty. But from my kind of my dance experience and my eating disorder, that's when I really got into going to the gym. Uh, I grew up in Vancouver, British Columbia, which is beautiful, but it rains a heck of a lot. Um, And I was doing distance running to try to like as a regime to control my body. Um, When I got into the gym, though, it was very it was very sh- scary, um, to be honest, because the the women were all doing cardio and the guys were training weights. And I remember just one day being like, "Well, they look like they're having fun over there in the weight pit, and here I am running on a treadmill like a hamster. I would way rather be on that side. I would." And it was like the the gym I trained at had a red line. Um, on the floor, that was like the difference between the weight room and mm-hmm. the carpet that the cardio machines were on. So I transcended, and this is—I mean, this was almost 15 years ago. Um, it wasn't as socially acceptable for women to to lift, especially in a commercial mm-hmm. gym. Um, mm-hmm. But that—I uh, mean—that was the end of my dancing, my dancing days, because I was—I was about 15, 16. Still competing, um, doing very, very well too, because the training with weights totally changed my my performance with dance. Absolutely changed. I was never a jumper. Suddenly I became a jumper. I became more of a power dancer. Um, my conditioning was better. So I was I was improving as a competitive dancer, but I was also getting tighter and running into more issues like issues with just I mean over training and under eating, the eating disorder, everything caught up with me. Um and so I and I kind of veered off into Wanting to learn as much as I could about training, so I did my personal training at about 16, um, just to purely learn about how to train. I didn't trust the bros in the gym. I at least I got one thing right at the beginning. Um, so I was like, if I'm going to learn about, if I want to, if I want to do this right, if I want to learn about it, I, I'm going to start at the foundations. Um, and it was actually through a Oxygen magazine, Oxygen Fitness magazine, at the grocery store. I saw Monica Brandt on the cover, and I was like, damn, like she's Checked and she's she, I want that. Um, so I looked it up and actually had her diet in there. And when I saw how much she ate and how much at that time I was not eating, um, that was kind of the, the the game changer for me to get healthy with my eating disorder. Um, and from there things kind of snowballed into me then going into kinesiology. Um, I went and I did my bachelor's of kinesiology at. university of British columbia um i went on and i did my masters and then currently i'm doing my doctoral program but simultaneously i was still had one foot in that in the fitness industry and so my story i think is a little bit um a little bit unique but at the same time frightening how often it happens that young girls are put on um, oral contraceptives as athletes to be able to either manipulate or suppress their menstrual cycle usually for, um, there's multiple different reasons, but when they're more in that athletic domain for the purposes that it's, I mean, it's really annoying to go through puberty when you're in a leotard or you're a runner or you're a swimmer. Um, and so that was my case. And because I also had a whole bunch of other things happening with like my eating disorder and our training, my body got really messed up at a young age. And so it wasn't until I had gotten healthy and I had really mean really gotten into the the, like that healthy living at lifestyle training and training hard and I was so strong um that my body then decided to do its own thing when I was about 18 um and I got very very sick my immune system shut down um of course I was an idiot still tried to train my ass off with like laryngitis bronchitis pneumonia I had strep all in one go um and my hormones went all over. My cortisol actually looks like what's called pseudo Cushing's disease. And then it dropped to Addison's. And then, I mean, long of the short, I'm very lucky that John Meadows, um, I got connected with him even though he was in Ohio. Um, John connected me to Dr. Eric Serrano because he had never seen anybody as uh, messed up as me. <laughs> and I, that's when I hooked up with Eric Serrano. Um, and Eric became my physician and really tried to help guide me through. Um because the medical system had nothing had no clue what to do with me. Not only was I a female like athletic individual, um, but I also just had so many things going on that uh, the normative kind of con- conventional um, endocrinology and internal medicine just didn't understand. Um, and so all of a sudden, I went from wanting to go into med to no, I'm going to go into research. Um I knew if I went into med, I wouldn't be able to do as much good as I have been able to even this early on in my career as a researcher. So, yeah, so I've kind of been all over the place. Um, my, my love has always been with weights. Um, I truly found home in the squat rack. Um, I went from having, I mean the the old stereotypical classical ballet instructors telling me that I was my legs were too big, and why were my why were my adductors touching in first position? And and I mean, just constantly being kind of berated for my body to really excelling at it. Um, I tried to get into more competitive fitness. Um, I mean, I pushed my body hard, but I knew that I would never achieve because of my health background. I would never achieve what I wanted to on a, on the stage. I'm, I played around with powerlifting. I didn't realize how good I actually was um which is actually kind of funny now looking back I was like shit I trained like a bodybuilder and I was setting records I didn't know that um Mm -hmm. but um but yeah long and the short is is that my I'm all over the place but I do truly I truly love the industry um the sides of it that are doing good trying to get athletes trying to put health back into the equation of athletic performance, um, and because I think of the diversity of my background, that's kind of opened opened me up to seeing a lot of stuff in the academic research that is just so behind what you're seeing in practice, um, and these, these silos that have been created and, and kind of resurrected around both coaching in gyms, on the field, by the experiential-based professionals, versus the, the academic, almost the, the academic snobbery. And that everything has to be evidence-based, everything has to be this very operationalized process um, that is just not practical or applicable. Um, and that what I am trying to do now, I mean, this is my passion and my why is to bring those worlds together. Um, because I think both can benefit from each other in different ways, but if we keep doing what we're doing, we're just we're breaking athletes. Um, athletes are not—they're not something that we should take lightly. Their bodies, um, their practice, their pursuits, and their performance. But it's—I um, mean, it, it's—it's a—it's a time to be alive as, a, as an athlete and as a coach.
0: Great stuff. So you've got a, a strong why, you've got a strong passion, you've got a strong niche so tell us about the services and the type of clients that you you typically end up working with and some of the, some of the patterns that you're seeing
1: yeah so um because of uh, well I, I won't even beat around the bush I'm a, I'm a female that puts me in a position as a Absolutely. with as a sport medicine um, researcher and I mean practitioner and as a as somebody in exercise physiology that puts me in my own little in my own Mm -hmm. little niche. Um, We talk about experience-based practice, but when you have a period, you understand it a little bit more. Mm -hmm. Um, Mm -hmm. And so that was one of the things I found within my, actually back in my undergrad, that was just lacking so much within kinesiology, sport medicine, uh, exercise physiology, was there was this lack of female-centered research. Um, And what was there was pretty much just repeating what had been said in medicine, Um, And the medicine research had been picked apart completely, yet nobody criticized, critiqued, or challenged what was being said within the the sport world. Um, So I work a lot with female athletes. I also work a lot with coaches who want to actually get a female-centered learning about the body, about performance, and really trying to to either optimize health, hormones. Um, A lot of my work is around When things go wrong, unfortunately, I'm usually the last stop when individuals get passed through different types of um, physicians and practitioners when they have, say, menstrual issues. Um, They usually end up at me um, because there's nobody else that understands what's going on. Um, And a lot of that does come down to the very, very, very tight boxes that have been put around the female body, around performance, around physiology, and just this massive void in, in research and understanding about how I mean, something is something as absolutely fundamental as the menstrual cycle influences sport performance, but not the ways that people think it does. Yes, um, be, yes. Because that conversation is just so it's so one-sided and it's oh, so male-dominated. Yeah. Yeah.
0: Well, I know what you're talking about in terms of your niche being traded in that, and I know this is this is doing a little bit of an opera and talking about myself, so I won't do it too much. But as, you, as strange as it may seem, in the early in the early 1980s. I was the only undergraduate in my entire faculty who had an interest in strength training. So I was in the same position where I was coming from experience, but I was, it was totally unique because no one really had any interest. Now we've come a long way since, then, and you're probably we, in Australia we're probably ten years behind the Americans. And so maybe maybe the early 70s that was the case. But I'm telling you, it, it, it's not an old, it's not an old industry. Like to say that mm-hmm. in, in, in a cohort, an entire faculty. I was the only person who did any strength research or had any interest in the subject whatsoever and that wasn't what that was only 40 50 years ago it's like I don't, it's not get some insights doesn't
1: it yeah well I don't think I'm thinking about my the school that I've been for 12 years and the the department I've been in nobody does strength research <laughs> like I'm I'm racking my, my brain right now and we've got we're one of the top kinesiology programs in the world
0: ah uh-huh. Changed,
1: and, eh? Yeah. And I'm going like, like, and this is actually embarrassing. Cause I'm like, Oh my God, we don't, what? Like we only just recently actually had more of a, a specialized strength and conditioning um, in like individuals, coaches working with the athletic teams. And I know, I mean, in Canada and the U S the, the difference between collegiate sport is massive. Absolutely. Like <laughs> massive, but um, yeah, crap. I can't, I can't think of anybody who is, is, it's focused on strength work. Um, and if anything, and I know, like, so a lot of my work also does look at the history and the history of physical culture, but the divide between strength training and physical education, um, exercise physiology, I mean, that was only really broken in the 1960s. The idea of the muscle bound athlete, you still uh-huh. see remnants of that in textbooks today. You still see this fear of athletes training with weights because of um, the, 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 Perception that it's going to make them lose their flow, get too rigid, not be a good athlete, be clumsy, um, and that—I mean, I—I I was actually talking with my uh, my supervisor about this. And we grabbed a bunch of textbooks from our physiology department, and, and we were shocked. We were absolutely shocked to see that this there's still those remnants that are left over in like in 2018.
0: Absolutely, and and American Strength uh, American College Program the most funded. Mm-hmm. Program in the world. It, it really, it's more funded even than pro sport in mm-hmm. a, in, a, in a broader sense. Um, their first strength coach on the payroll was, I think, sixty nine. But really, no assistance to him until about mid seventy seventy mm-hmm. uh, mid seventies. You know, it, it, but by by the late seventies, you could probably count the number of colleges on without taking your shoes off in America that had a paid strength coach. So yeah. we're talking about yeah. a really young industry. And the first thing that was said to Boyd Epley when he became the first um, hired strength coach uh, as a coach, not a consultant, at, at Nebraska, the uh, the AD said to him, and don't you make those athletes slower. So, yep. you know, th- the fear, and the fear in baseball, like baseball didn't st- touch strength training until another decade after that. Um, you know, they put their hand in the sand and crunched their hand in the sand, and that was the extent of it. Uh, there was, Swimming. I mean, I, 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 I was with the Australian Olympic team in the lead up to 92 in, in, in one of the buses, and the debate that was had, they were so anti strength training, and this was 1991. Mm-hmm. So we, we're talking about a, a really recent acceptance, as you said, uh, NFL, NFL 63, I think, was the first high strength coach. You know, we're talking about a very young industry.
1: Oh, yeah. And when it comes to women, it's even worse. Um, I, I just actually submitted a, a publication on this to um the Journal of Strength and Conditioning that there is such um, a void still when it comes to strength training considerations for female athletes because well I mean that so the I think it was the NCAA released their foundation statement in but 30 almost 30 years ago now and there's been like specific guidelines for training that fail to recognize the social and the cultural um, implications that have been attached to females training with weights that are actually a massive barrier to female athletes committing and actually doing a weight program the way it's supposed to be done. Um, And that we can continue to write these guidelines and we can continue to implement these guidelines. But if we don't start breaking down like the, the social aspects of strength training for women, Athletes are still avoiding it. Um, I mean, there's been research that that's been done, and and more than one study um, that females will kind of regulate their own training programs that a strength coach will give them, um, whether it is training below threshold, um, adding in more like cardiovascular work at the end of a program to be able to try to become more catabolic um, for fears of getting too bulky, too big, too muscular because that muscular female body, even when it is for athletic purposes, is still highly stigmatized. Um, It still brings a ton of social implications for individuals. And that I have, I had hope, I guess I should say, not even I have hope. I had hope five, about five years ago when you started to see more women training, but it was like, I mean, now we're in the booty building world and you get athletes that are just now becoming so imbalanced because they're just training their freaking glutes. Um, which oh, is important. We, we don't could, get me wrong, but <laughs> we could
0: start on that subject, couldn't we? Yeah, I tell you what. I mean, that, yeah, yeah. I introduced that subject to strength training in, in the practical sense in, in in the early 1990s. Took it out yeah. of the therapy yeah. world, brought it in, introduced a whole range of exercises. No one had ever seen it before, and they had no idea what I'm talking about. But I'm embarrassed by the overreaction to it, to, to uh, glute training. I mean, it, we, you know, I don't want to. On a, on a, on a, on a, and i go off on a tangent too big but i'm telling you what that's that's the subject yeah. that i've got in more time on because the overreaction to glute training is like really it, it, yes it was missing but it's not that important to the extent you're taking it to
1: yeah and i think we could write a paper because i have i have the, like the history and the cultural stuff about this so maybe we need to combine forces because i just have this massive wad of data that's sitting there because it was my about three years ago i just i actually was approached by a bunch of old school physical culture. I mean, well, Jan and Terry Todd that are down at University yeah, 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 of Texas. Yeah, and and so Jan is one of my, on my supervisor committee. And we got laughing with my supervisor, uh, Dr. Patricia Patinsky, who's been like absolutely like seminal in the work of social, cultural research, especially around women and exercise. And it was so funny because it's like, they're just, they're like, well, Victoria, what's, what's with these women doing, doing like Jane Fonda moves in the gym? <laughs> and yeah. I just was like, Okay, let's uh, let me dig into this, and I will let you guys know next year at the conference. Well,
0: I, I, um, I can tell you, I, I can tell you that I took some of those moves out of aerobic classes, literally in the yeah. 90, late 80s and early 90s, and I introduced them to strength training. Now, I first published them in T Mag in the late 1990s. I yeah. in my book Get, Get Buff in the late 1990s, they were not being done. They mm-hmm. like I, I took a risk. In that mm-hmm. people could laugh at me for for taking a, girls aerobic exercises yeah. and bring yeah. to the gym.
1: Oh yeah,
0: and, I, and I, I did it with an intent, but the intent was to fill a gap, mm-hmm. not to not to create a tsunami of overtaking mm-hmm. strength exercises. It was meant to be what I call control drills, just yeah. little things to, to contribute. You know, the, yeah. the idea that you've got to place a bar on your hips and thrust your your, your your groin in there with with a bar and 200 kilos either side, like really? I mean, yeah. we, we we're opening a whole in with, but just to be real clear. In the strength training world, there was no consideration of of, of the hip historically. It was called the legs, and yeah, one yeah. of the great examples. If you go back to, um, you know, the keys of the inner universe, Bill Pearl's classic book, mm-hmm, etc. All great, mm-hmm. and and even um, even Doctor Squat's uh, book on bodybuilding. There was no. Yeah. I was one that said, okay, let's break the lower body to hip and quad dominant. And yeah. at that point in time, it was very clear, and from personally in my application with athletes, especially athletes coming back from surgeries and with the intention of preventing surgeries, that we had a a real shortage of hip-dominant exercises. So I not only introduced the terms, I introduced a whole range of exercises, and including some of those Jane Fonda movements. But oh, I'm yeah.
1: disgusted
0: and, and I, I'm embarrassed where it's gone. Mm-hmm. And it'll have to become a, a crusade because I'm getting more people uh, asking me to, to address this topic. And sorry, mm-hmm. Sue, Victoria, you're really triggering me on this one because mm-hmm. I started this shit and look where it's gone. Yeah. It's, it's got <laughs> out of control. Well. Like, yeah. Yeah. I can't even start to explain that the glutes don't even have the same ability as the abdominals. Like oh, we're yeah. forgetting about the abdominals, but yeah. the glutes have nowhere near the ability of the abdominals to correct the pelvic tilt. And, and the pelvic tilt is a major issue in females. But anyway, yeah. I'll stop.
1: Well, no, it, it's funny is that like I had, so my mom had one of the Jane Fonda's books from like, this, like the 70s. Mm-hmm. And that was in the in my parents' basement when I was a kid. And I remember going down there when I first was getting into, I was probably Eleven or twelve, and flipping through that, trying to do like my own conditioning programs for dance, and I was doing, I think it was like Rover's Revenge. Like the names, the exercises were hilarious. But that's the stuff I did. And so when I saw it in my early twenties, kind of get rebooted, I was like, what the, what the crap? Like this is the, I, I, do this stuff for control, but why are we, why are we making it something so much bigger? And it, I mean, it comes down to just the, 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 the value that's been placed on certain body parts or certain even just perform like performance moves um performance um traits with the body but yeah i mean we we've, i think we've got an article on our hands
0: absolutely and I, I tell you now doggy extensions that i call them which is on yeah. on all fours lifting yeah. one yeah. knee up in extend- so doggy yeah, extension of- revenge. <laughs> exactly i know, exactly yeah. and the other one when you lie on your back i call it i call it support single leg or double leg hip thigh extensions yeah. Yeah. they were t- two classics that yeah. I took straight out of the aerobics class. No, yeah. no, no no, apologies, but it was not intended to ever be loaded to the way it's been done. It mm-hmm. was meant to be a low volume, isolated, controlled drill, okay. stop, now move on and do some strength training.
1: Yeah. Yeah, no, I, no absolutely. That's
0: beautiful. I like the way you, you understand it because not many people understand. I mean, you might not have been active in the industry in the 80s and the 90s, but you understand the link. And this is probably the first time I've spoken with anybody who understands that is where it came from. It literally came out of, out of the aerobics class because yeah. – I, I was involved also in the fitness industry in the, in yeah. quite extensively in the 80s, and I got to see this stuff. I mean, aerobic dance competitions were the, were the dominant fitness competition of, of the yeah. era. So, you know, we got yeah. to see all this stuff. I saw value in some of these things. And that's why I brought them over, but,
1: yeah.
0: yeah, it's been hijacked.
1: Well, yeah. Well, I mean, that, though, that really is the, speaks to the fitness industry, and, I, like, that, the, the saying, what goes around comes around. Like, it's not that at all. It's what goes around goes around. It's a... It's a mm-hmm. con- continual cycle of insanity, and I, like I, I'm a su- I'm a super fan of the history of physical culture and sport. Um, I, th- those are some of the classes I teach at. I mean, at the university level, and um, f- like when I, went, I I when I want to learn something, and when I'm interested in something, I want to learn everything. So I was like, I'm going back to the beginning. I'm going back to like ancient Greece and ancient Rome, and I want to find Good out girl. everything I can about everything. Um, I mean, I didn't. We I, share actually, that. Yeah, I I did a paper that we're still kind of pulling together right now, though, on the the history of the kettlebell, because somebody was asking me about it one day, and I was like, (laughs) (laughs) yeah, I was like, actually, what's funny is that I got home from Swiss, and I was going through my notes, and these are from like 2011, and I actually had your name written down on one of my notepads from 2011 to contact you about the kettlebell, and I got laughing so hard, because I was like, oh, man. I don't know why, I, no, I don't know who told me to contact you, I don't know where this came from, but um, my whole thing with the, the kettlebell was that somebody tried to tell me that it was it was purely Russian, and I was like, well, You're no, right. it's not, yeah. not though. <laughs> it's not at all, because if we look at the history of physical culture, and we look at the history of sport, objects were used all over the world, and mm-hmm. that you look at even something like stone lifting, there are so many cultures around the world that have stone lifting embedded into their cultural fabric, from you've got stone lifters in Spain, to Scotland, to Polynesian islands. And I mean, Terry Todd, before he passed away, this is what his work has been on for the last couple of years. He's got some amazing documentaries that Rogue um, helped, helped to get up there and to fund and to support, but that it's not just one place. It's not just one geographical place that can lay claim to movement practices they can lay claim to certain, I mean, even just objects themselves. And with the kettlebell is that when I traced it back and kept tracing it and tracing it and tracing it, I mean, there were things that were being done by monks in China that were with like with locks um, that resembled this, this object very similar to the kettlebell. You saw them in Highland being used for Highland Games practice. You saw weights being lifted in the Mediterranean. You saw them being done. Actually, I mean, one of the biggest um, centers was in Germany, and it was that Turner... Uh, gymnastics movement that is the foundations of physical culture, that you see kettlebell type objects being lifted, um, that then got passed actually through, I mean, I can get into super geek on you guys, but like, I mean, it was at a Vienna conference in I think 1888, that then a Russian, um, one of the founders of kind of like the Russian physical culture movement came there, he was the the trainer and the doctor to the czar at the time, and was learning from all these different physical culture individuals that were from German bodybuilding, then then all of a sudden you see the kettlebell in Russia. Um, yep. So when you're thing- mm-hmm.
0: let, let me add to you add your recess.
1: Yeah. Between
0: the advent of the NSCA in '78 or mm-hmm. National Coaches Association in '78, through to I'm guessing the mid mid to late 80s, Ken Conta, who was the original yep. director of the NSA, would take yep. a field group, a study group, to a Russian province every single year. And mm-hmm. I signed up for one of their last, and they cancelled it because of the obvious. Um, yep. so I, I didn't get to go, but I, I'd love to see if you got your hold of anyone's mm-hmm. notes, if you found a single reference to a kettlebell in those journeys. And the mm-hmm. second one is is Yesis's Soviet Sports Review, which he was writing
1: mm-hmm. yep.
0: um, through the 80s, if not earlier. Yep. And I, I tell you what, I, I, when kettlebells came on the scene with the talk about Russian, yep. I, I was in a state of shock because I'm thinking, listen, like I'm a reasonable student of the culture of the yep. industry, and I, like I don't know what you're talking about. You know, have yep. I missed something here? Yeah, good girl. Well,
1: yeah, and so that's actually one of the most interesting things that I found with all of my data on this was that you see them at the turn of the 21st century, and they were actually being done with um, with strongmen. And so the strongmen that were traveling, they're like uh, traveling the globe at the time, were doing feats of strength with kettlebell. Um, weightlifting was actually in the early Olympic Games at in, in like 1896, um, and that I had some like really dodgy video footage from like some of the early games that we believe that they were lifting, um, doing kettlebell lifts, Uh, and then so you and then you see them actually in North America because York Barbell manufactured them. Um, It was actually Milo Barbell first, and then it kind of, um, I mean, they got bought off by York. Um, And then I know that in the 1930s you have Bob Hoffman that went to Germany, um, and actually they they have kettlebells in the Museum of Weightlifting um, that were from Germany, not from Russia, and mm-hmm. and that um, then you see the them actually even being on some of the front covers of like the Weeder magazines, and then they just disappear. And and what my I mean I've got some pretty weird theories on this, but they disappeared um, from the late 1940s to the 1950s, all the way to the early 1990s within North American sport and physical culture. They're gone. Um, I can't find any any remnants of them within publications. And I mean, we've scoured, there's been this, we've been working on this now for gosh, six, seven years. Um, And we can't find other than, I mean, I'm going to now, I got notes to go check out the NCAA stuff. Um, But, uh, and then they kind of, they reemerge with the the movement of the Russian um, kettlebellers into the U.S. in the 1990s. And then you slowly start, to see them getting picked up by the late 1990s, and then they really get exploded onto the scene with uh, with CrossFit. Um, and with yeah. this kind of early 2000s strength and conditioning movement, and now they're everywhere. Um, now they've become a commercialized object. And in different cultures around the world, they have different kind of, I mean, especially within Russia in particular. But I also found that like, in the 1920s, they were being done in the um, Soviet sports schools. They were being done as a communist part of like the communist movement with the actual um, built the body for for war essentially the the whole foundations um, prior to and during the Russian Revolution. um, You see them being done in the 1940s with kettlebell competitions because I mean, like I said, when I get into a subject, I go deep Um, because that is how we learn about today. Um, All too often, I find that especially within contemporary. Sport and conditioning physical culture um, fitness We're so focused on the latest and greatest methods of tomorrow that we completely ignore What influenced us to get to where we are today?
0: Absolutely. So here's a, here's a little challenge, just a little challenge. So I'd love you to help me with this one I'm gonna give you mm-hmm. an example. And then I'm gonna give you the challenge The story goes like this one of Australia's greatest marathon runners is a man called Robert D. Costello who uh, Commonwealth Games 82 or, or thereabouts uh, and this is a story, I can't say for sure, but apparently he, he had gastro during the race. So mm-hmm. he's, his feces is dribbling down his legs and he's using a cloth to wipe them down, for obviously to minimise the the visual embarrassment. This is a story. And mm-hmm. and it started a trend of athletes getting a, a wet cloth and rubbing it up and down their legs, not knowing why, because they were modelling something. So that, that's how easy it is. And I'm a big, big fan of, if people start a trend and there's no foundation to the trend, I'm more than happy to say, listen, hold it. Um, really do you understand that mm-hmm. you don't need to do this? Um, so let me, let me put this right. I introduced a single leg stiff-legged deadlift and, and mm-hmm. I, I experimented with it from the late 80s to the early 90s and published it in, in, in the American market in the, in, in the late, late, say 98. So stiff-legged single leg deadlift mm-hmm. body weight or, or with a light dumbbell. By, in 2001, uh, a person published it in men's health with no credit or referencing and had the leg swing up the back. Now, everywhere I go around the world, I see people's back legs swing up, and the question I mm-hmm. ask is this, and, and, and this is more of a, s- a study in, in, in social history than anything else. Do people mm-hmm. lift their leg up the back because one of the first failed imitations simply did it, or, or is, there like, is there another reason? Now, in, in hindsight, I realised that I developed the exercise with a market of athletes who, who worked with me and were very flexible, and therefore mm-hmm. keeping, keeping the non-support leg parallel to the other leg um, required of level of flexibility that I in hindsight. I realized that the average person didn't have but I, I'm, I'm more intrigued by uh, uh, People around the world. And I mean everywhere in the world You couldn't go in the gym in the world now without seeing someone holding a dumbbell in the hand lifting their back leg up and doing the uh, like a, uh, this Interpretation of my single leg stiff leg deadlift mm-hmm. are they doing it simply because of that one picture in men's health in 2001? Uh, and, and I'm not asking you to have the answer mm-hmm. for me now, but it's, it's a trend. It's a global trend mm-hmm. that is that is it's without rational I, I like it was not the intent and it was yeah. just i'm intrigued i'm literally intrigued why are you bastardizing the movement but anyway yeah. I, thought, I thought i'd share that
1: absolutely i mean this is some of the stuff so like within some of the, the the more when we when we stop looking purely at like the materialistic or the physical the flesh body um just the medicalized body the one that we we focus on things like max vo2 and um heart rate variability and and strength and we we look to more of the 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 social the historical the linguistic the movement practices Mm -hmm. side of our industry we we see exactly this over time we see certain movement practices that get um taken up popularized whether they should be or not Um, we see like the, the pop certain popular figures that do something and then it gets, uh, it's imitation essentially. Um, or we see movement practices from other, other sports, other physical activities. Like when I see the single leg stiff, like a deadlift that's done in the, the bastardized form, I think yoga right away. I think yoga, like, I think you're doing a weighted yoga move because that's what it reminds me of. Um,
0: I think of the oil fields in California yeah. with, with those those big steel machines. But exactly, uh, exactly.
1: I, I mean, it's a, it's a ponche in, in ballet, like that. That's mm-hmm. what it reminded me of was that that move. I remember the first time I saw people doing it, um, and of course back then, like I didn't think anything of it. I was like, oh, that kind of looks like it. Like the levers don't really make sense on that, but mm-hmm. you do. You, I'm gonna be over here doing doing my own training. Um, I think though that's, I mean, that speaks to the insanity of the industry right now. Um, really, the insanity of the industry for the past oh, two hundred years, that things get sold when they shouldn't necessarily. And by sold, I don't mean monetary value. I mean like yes. sold as yes. in and just put out to the world when they sometimes Money. shouldn't be. Yeah, yeah. yeah.
0: And you know, there's so many of them in in uh, strength running, including the the interesting habit of hyperextending the spine in the vertical position that you you know we don't need to do in a competition but every non-competitive uh person trying to do a deadlift thinks that you've got to for some reason um you know extend at the at the top uh, and, and and jam their back so you and i have really uh dominated this conversation i mean i have you mentioned i want to just quickly put out to um, yeah anyone on the call it's really time for you to put your hand up um don't let me do- dominate this conversation uh, if you've got questions victoria can i see those hands if you don't know how to use them i'll have to just take you off mute anyway hopefully you know how to put up your hands electronically speaking so good to see mark uh, on the call um and, and jeffrey rick and ron a few uh, victor a few people i recognize and we don't have electronic hand up now i just want to check with one of them that they uh, can in fact hear me so jeff i'm just going to take jeff off of me jeffrey can you confirm the audio is working you'll have to unmute yourself because we might not have he is self-muted um let me go to ron ron give us your scottish action right i just want to confirm that you can hear me or oh, rick i just want one person to say that the audio is working for them Rick, the same thing. Uh, Mark, I'll take you off mute as well. I can hear oh, you. You can hear me, fantastic. That's all I need to know. Mark, just the second question. Do you know how to use the hands up button on your device? Do you know how to do that? I do not. Okay. So what I'll do, uh, Ron, so somewhere on your button there's a there's a, kind of put my hand up sort of thing, get attention, Well, I'm gonna leave you off. So if you, if you have a question, stay on, but you can self mute as well. Um, and I know Ron has a question. So Ron, go ahead. Uh, Ron has got a Scottish accent, but he's based out of Indonesia, here for you, Victoria. Ron, you're going to have to self-mute yourself. I mean, take yourself off self-mute. That's it.
2: Yeah. Uh, hi, Victoria. How are you? I'm good. How are you? I'm fine. It's a bit early in the morning here. It's 6, well, just going 6, 6.45 a.m., but it's always good to listen to Ian's podcasts and webinars and get some get the hive of information and value um i have a couple of uh like female train uh, female client and i'm always trying to get across to them the the value of eating like good nutrition and uh, good set protein um how do you get that across to to the people that you are in contact with
1: Mm-hmm. That's a that's a great question. Um, one of the first main things is to, well, I mean, it re- actually, really speaks to what Ian and I were just talking about is that you you almost have to reconceptualize the way food has been um, has been discussed. Um, a lot of times, people don't think of food as being as important as it is to just general health. We almost take it for granted, um, and that then we also kind of get these perspectives, especially within like the fitness industry, protein being you know, the building block of muscle, which, okay, yeah, sure. If we go get some very dense biochemical, um, basis of it, but that food itself is such an important marker and it's such an important tool for health. Um, and so if you try to rephrase it and reteach even just the fundamentals of what it means to eat good food, um, it's, I mean, especially for the athletic population who are continually inflicting inflammation on their bodies, what we eat can actually help to mediate and, and monitor that. Um, it can be a powerful tool to help like mitigate disease, to help to not only have better energy and sleeping patterns. And so I, one of the things that I've, has always worked brilliantly for me is just to go back to teaching people why, instead of just telling them what to eat. Um, and when it comes to women it's not just about the, the way that they look and I mean if that's something that they're focused on um, one of the most basic kind of sayings that I try to promote is when there is function so when the body is functioning form or the way that you look the way that you perform will follow when the body is not functioning when you're not going to the bathroom regularly when you're not sleeping when you're not digesting food properly when you're not eating, to nourish, you're not going to look the way you want, you're not going to perform the way you want. And you can trick it through enough like, you know, drugs and trickery for only so much until you just start to break down. Um, and so I think trying to instill those very fundamentals um, do have a massive impact. Does that yeah. answer your question? Yeah, that's, that's, a, that's, a, that's, that's good, It's
2: that's good information. I can relay that really that to some of my my
1: clients. Mm-hmm. And it doesn't need to be complicated. Um, we like to overcomplicate everything. I mean, crap. we the industry right now is overcomplicating breathing, mm. like <laughs> one of the basic things that we do. We we are overcomplicating breathing and sleeping and talking and eating and just moving. Um, but with food, it's it's eat good food. It, it doesn't need to be a a, a science for the individuals that are just at, especially at the foundations or really even high-performance athletes. It doesn't need to be as complicated for some individuals. For a lot of individuals, it can just be as simple as eat whole foods, eat less processed foods, cook yeah. more, buy less. Um, when you can, make sure that you're getting in a protein source, a fat source, and a carb <sighs> source, and that, you can, and that you can identify that on your plate. Or you can say yeah. all the ingredients. You know what all the ingredients that you're putting into your body, that you're making sure you're not going for long periods of time without eating or that you're not walking around full all the time, um, that you're yep. you're eating the foods that make you feel good and perform well. People go, well, you know what? Eating junk food makes me feel good. Well, sure enough, but it's that's more of a, a neurotransmitter, a neurochemical response that's happening. So let's strip that back and let's go okay well you also don't want to lose weight <laughs> or you want to perform better so those two things are not working in alignment with each other um eat a I mean, frick eat a vegetable and a fruit a day it can't get more simple than that drink more yeah. water so i think by just putting those fundamental tenets in place of just the bare basic basic don't overcomplicate, complicate especially not at the beginning that would be like me getting like a, especially like a, a i mean a newbie to the gym and trying to break down every component of their squat on day one yeah just see how they move um so that's the same thing just see how people eat first even if it's a food log and they don't just include like the foods that they're eating but how the food makes them feel i mean get them back in touch with hey did you feel bloated after you had that protein bar well yeah did did that happen a lot does that always happen well kind of yeah now that i look at my log well, maybe we need to replace that protein bar. And if you're doing that for convenience sake, I can't take that away. Let's just try to find something that is still convenient for you, but maybe has a better profile within it.
0: Good stuff. So I appreciate Ron. Um, Yeah, thank you.
1: Thanks, Ron. Mm -hmm
0: we've got about five different countries represented on the call so I'm going to keep jumping um, Rick's got his hand mm-hmm. up now Rick Rick is out of Perth Western Australia it's like a different country yeah across there, it?
3: <laughs> yeah hi Victoria um, I've got a question in relation to a client who I saw just yesterday actually she's a 34 year old triathlete um, <clears throat> now my question is in relation to hormones and the menstrual, menstrual cycle and basically she was telling me yesterday that her body feels more sore and fatigued during various times in her cycle um mm-hmm. that time of the month even though she's on contraceptive medication but it's not the contraceptive pill now i didn't mm-hmm. go into asking what it was or anything like that because that's not my area mm-hmm. so it would have been over mm-hmm. the top of my head but um she has been on this for many years she doesn't menstruate uh, she's healthy from what i can see and what i'm being told um, she hasn't got any issues uh, she feels that the adrenaline of competition must mm-hmm. override these feelings of soreness and fatigue if they are coinciding with her cycle and my question is is this true or could this be true is this normal mm-hmm. and are there any implications to injury for her situation ongoing in your professional opinion if,
1: if only you could see my face right now <laughs> um, <laughs> I am I am smiling, but not in a good way. Okay, so let me just grab a couple more pieces of information. So you said she does not menstruate? Yes, she doesn't menstruate. And Does not menstruate. Okay, I don't so know. She, I sort of like yeah.
3: internally raise my eyebrows as well. Yeah.
1: Because um, yeah. I
3: used to work with yeah. a doctor who is an alternative, holistic doctor. And he yeah. one of the first questions he ever asked any of his patients, whether they were athletic or not, was yeah. a female clients, young, especially young ones, yeah. are you on the contraceptive pill? Are you yeah. taking contraceptive medication?
1: yeah Um, absolutely yeah so when you don't so just the fundamentals of i mean of just human of women's health women's bodies is that it's not necessarily menstruation that is a determiner of a woman's kind of the barometric meter of their health it's whether or not they ovulate and so ovulating is the process that happens in mid-cycle that creates progesterone so when a female does not menstruate when she does not, um, which usually is also an indication that they're not ovulating. I mean, there are some variations of this, but um, that you can ovulate, not menstruate, or vice versa. But when you're on the contraceptive, uh, either oral contraceptive pills, or you've got a uh, certain types of IUDs that are um, not the copper ones, copper ones, though, again, there are variations to this, the shot, a pill, a patch, a pellet, You've had a tubal ligation, ovarian ablation, hysterectomy, ooectomy, all that jazz. And a lot of times actually with the female athletic population, because they're in a higher stress demand on their bodies, they don't ovulate. Um, Now, this for a certain amount of time isn't awful. It's not amazing, but it's not awful. And it's relatively common because the body's not going to want to make a baby or be able to make a baby if... It doesn't have all the conditions it needs to do it in a healthy way. So, number one, I'm going, okay, well, shit, she's not ovulating. That means she's not making most of the progesterone in her body. Progesterone is incredibly important for numerous functions, including bone health. Estrogen helps to make bones, but progesterone helps to preserve it. And one of the scary things that we see with individuals, especially athletes that have been on the pill is that it's actually not it's not it doesn't help with their bones. It actually has a high degree of hindrance on their bones because they are blocking some of these essential hormones and these essential functions that we need to to have bone integrity. And sure, physical activity does help to do that, but it doesn't even come remotely close to when our body is in hormonal balance or hormonal homeostasis. Especially when we are like actually making progesterone. So right away there, I'm going, okay, well, she's a performance athlete that is not making her own progesterone. That in the short term, I mean, like I said, it's not it's not the best thing. It's not the worst thing. Now, over time, you're going to start to run into issues because your H, so your hypothalamus pituitary ovarian access, um, it's the main access, it's the main feedback loops involved with reproductive hormones, but also just the reproductive function and menstrual cycle, it gets cut off. It gets castrated when you are on birth control that is like a, the, the, the hormonal birth control. Now, athletes, it's very common for them to shut down their hypothalamus, pituitary, adrenal access, your HPA access through physical activity, through the stress of high performance, which will shut down your menstrual cycle as well. So in athletes, it's not uncommon to see both axeses get shut down when they're in high performance states. So that's, I mean, and that's scary. That's scary for anybody, mm. let alone now we start adding in the factors of, of performance that are also the required things. Um, and I could get into huge amounts of detail, but I'm trying to trying to summarize this as, as succinctly as I can on this. So, being that she's 34 years old, um, my questions go: Does she have kids? Does she want to have kids? Because if she does, if she does, there might be potential. And I'm saying this very, I mean, very widely, but potential problems in the future for fertility um, if she's not ovulating regularly.
3: Um, yeah well, i know that she doesn't want to have kids which she yeah. pretty much told me that yesterday um, and mm-hmm. she her her comment was the contraceptive that she is taking is more permanent so <laughs> i'm guessing it's some kind of Maybe is there an implant or something like that? Maybe yeah. So there's yeah. there's
1: an I there's an IUD and so there's two different types of IUDs are uh, sorry intrauterine devices. The copper IUD or the like the copper T is a, a copper based IUD and it's a non hormonal IUD that essentially what it does is it in- increases the inflammation within the uterus to repel the abilities of sperm. Um, and then there is a hormonal IUD that actually has hormones that get that get like um, radiate at that uterine level. Um, and it's perceived, big, big air quotes around that one, to have less effects on the, the functioning of the body as a whole. But we know that's actually not true at all. Um, it does still have huge implications for the body. And so, well, birth control, I mean, if you don't want to have kids, a personal choice, all for that. However, you need to then actually replace what you're taking away. So if you're taking away anywhere between 90 to 98% of your body's progesterone production, you've got to replace that. And synthetic progesterone or the progesterone that's in most birth control is not actually progesterone. It's called progesterone. It's not even spelled the same because it does not do the same thing in the body. And it actually can have detrimental effects on the body. Um, and, and natural, usually it can be topical, it can be sublingual, progesterone is the only way that you can replace what you are taking away when you ovulate. Now, again, I don't know exactly what type of birth control she's on. If she's on something like the copper IUD, you can still ovulate, but you've gotta be able to tweak things a little bit to actually promote that. Um, Going back to your original question, so some of the things I'm going, okay, well, we know progesterone influences and is affected by sleep. And so sleep disturbances are relatively high When women don't ovulate, because what happens is, and it's the simplest acronym I could have ever come across in my brain one day, actually when I was in Ireland uh, in the summer, was HELP, high estrogen, low progesterone. So when you do not ovulate, this is what your body, I mean, this is what it resorts to, is it starts to kick up either not only estrogen production, sometimes it's not even the production, it's the metabolism, so how it excretes out of your body. Um, well, at the same time, you're not making most of the progesterone you need for vital functions. And so your inflammation goes up and it goes up in mm-hmm. response to this kind of this disconnect that's been created within the body. As an athlete, you're already creating inflammation. That's already yep. being created just through the process of performing and performance. And so when that inflammation starts to climb, think of it as a, a domino effect it's creating yep. other responses within the body. So she's not going to be able to recover the way that she wants to. Now, the the, the intricacies of this can go, I can go on and on and on. But even when she is, um, like you said, she notices that at her adrenaline soreness fatigue at certain parts of her cycle. Um, but even if she's not ovulating, her hypothalamus pituitary adrenal system it still is trying to make her body go through those processes because it's not like those two centers are disconnected. They work together. So even if the body's not ovulating, it's trying to ovulate. It's trying to make things happen. So you can have individuals, um, again, this is relatively common. Um, it's called luteal di- uh, phase dysfunction in performance athletes where they will, um, their bodies will keep trying to ovulate. Well, well, I mean, sometimes it can last for weeks so, all of a sudden, the, the luteal phase goes from about 14 days to weeks or even months because their body keeps trying to kickstart itself. Um, and that's where things happen, like sleep issues, gastric issues. Um, you sometimes can have a higher rate of, I mean, constipation, all the way to skin issues, cravings, irritability. Um, I mean, your your even just your cardiac output drops. Your strength abilities drop because you're not your body's not making the estrogen it needs either because when in your menstrual cycle when estrogen is high progesterone is low when progesterone is high estrogen is low well estrogen and androgens dance together so your androgens when you're in that luteal phase are not as high and actually your cortisol is high so I hope I I know I'm probably throwing a lot of stuff at everybody on the call and I'm sorry for that but it's just because it is so complicated um, going back to the bare balloons though, so how can we help her with her recovery? How can we help her with her fatigue? How can we help her feel better and perform better even when there's all this other stuff happening? Well, as a strength coach, there are some things that you can recommend, um, such as make sure her like she's sleeping and make sure she's sleeping and it's very, very regimented because her body needs that in particular because if she's not ovulating and she's not making progesterone, the the like melatonin is going to be um, affected down chain. If she's not careful and same with cortisol, it's going to get affected down chain. So sleep, stress reduction, very, very important. Proper nutrition to try to nourish at the cellular level what she is depleting through the pursuits of performance. Making sure her recovery and recovery types of techniques are um, really, really uh, heightened during those times to help her help her body just give it what it needs because it's not getting it from a hormonal point of view. Um, It sometimes can be the most simplest things like sleep, like social relationships, like having fun that actually can make the biggest impact when an individual has menstrual issues. I always laugh at, at, there's been some cases and I'm in throughout my, I mean, throughout my practical experience that I, when I work with individuals that it's like just by getting them to have fun again, they magically get their periods back after years. It had nothing to do with the food. It had nothing to do with the sleep. It had nothing to do with the, I mean, with overtraining. It was that they were they were lacking in such a fundamental human um, pursuit. And that, I mean, we can, I can get into the physiology behind it, but you got dopamine, you got serotonin, and those all affect because it's actually not the endocrine system. It's the neuroendocrine system. And so our, our neurotransmitters affect our our endocrine and our hormonal um, processes, but something so simple can still have a profound p- impact on performance and on on health. Um, I mean, I would try to get some more information from her. And if you don't feel comfortable talking about this stuff, I mean, that's where things like texting and WhatsApp is great for check-ins or just doing emails or written kind of forms. Um, there's a menstrual tracker that I used that was actually the first one. This was before apps were a thing. Um, by Dr. Gerilyn Pryor. Now, Gerilyn Pryor's work was in the early 1980s. She was an athlete and she was talking about menstrual cycles in female athletes that were runners and saying, what is, what should we actually be concerned? Um, She has been a massive positive influence for women's health and female athlete health in the 80s, in the 90s. Um, And she did this huge, huge study uh, that the the result of it was This menstrual tracker, which I can um, I can send along to Ian for if he wants to pass out to everybody. But it's a great tool to actually not only for an individual to start to understand what's happening within our own body and how performance might be affected. But it's a conversation tool for you as a coach um, to say, hey, let's just let's just track. Let's just see what's going on here. Let's just see how your sleep might be to be affected at certain times. And and I usually say to do it for three months in a three month period of time. Let's see how your digestion is getting affected. Let's see how your performance is getting affected. And then how can I, as a strength coach, now work with that? Does that help at all? I know I tangent
3: No, that's fantastic. Yeah, I, I, I'm actually going to have to listen back to this and take some notes um, and, yeah, help her out, um, in know, in a fashion, yeah, that because, that, um, yeah, you're the expert. And um, <laughs> a lot of that was – kind of like it opens up a can of worms but um yeah it was... it's,
1: it's, it's a very complicated question <laughs> because yeah, i yeah. mean i could i would be able to personalize it a little bit more if i knew what she was on um, in terms of the contraceptive yeah. agent yeah. um but at the end of the day it's like that The the the, I think the big takeaways is that knowing whether or not an athlete ovulates is incredibly important as a male strength coach though that can start to get treacherous if you aren't armed with tools like a menstrual tracker or, or, or just knowing your communication channels, uh, especially if it's an individual that maybe you, I mean, whether it be age or just comfort or religion, there's lots of different reasons why that, that communication channel might not be as open. So what can we do to work with that? Um, technology is a great tool, especially if somebody has, say, an online check-in program that they're using, or if they are sending emails, or if they are even just having a diary. Like I use, I'm old-fashioned, I use a date book. And I get the individuals I work with to literally get a date book, and that is their—that to me is the best tool for data management. Um, it doesn't disappear when you get rid of apps. Someone, you know you get a new phone, it can't be deleted off your computer, um, and you've yeah. got it for you've got it for years. So something like that can be super super powerful. And for you as an individual, um, I have no I have no problem passing you. Um, like in passing Ian the menstrual tracker and to to try to get other forms of education to you guys because that's the only way that we can get this out. There. Yeah,
3: sure. Um, yeah, um, that's fantastic. She's very open to things like that and I do have a great communication with her because my background's actually from when I first met her it was through soft tissue therapy. So she's quite mm-hmm. often on my table for an hour or more. So we mm-hmm. always talk. It's a great way of communicating and, and mm-hmm. g- gleaning information without actually Asking too many questions, if you know what I mean. And, um, oh, absolutely. And she's very open. She's very good in the um, the recovery side of things and proactive in that. So mm. um, the stretching side of things. And yeah. I'm just trying now to get her to really have a look closely at her strength training because what she's been doing is a generic program off the internet. And, yeah, it's, it's opened up a can of worms. So I'm trying to cross her over into some, <laughs> some stuff that's um, more along the lines of
1: yeah the ksi way Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. well and i mean like that's even gosh i could go into so many other things just just with this one question because you're at different points and depending on the individual but at different points in the menstrual cycle you're going to have periods of time that some certain individuals might not have the same tendon and ligament laxity as they do at other points so when estrogen is high relaxin is high Well, but progesterone helps with like the muscle to actually to relax and to be more pliable. So if you're not making progesterone, well, gosh, you're going to be stiff. Mm -hmm. Uh, Female athletes are more prone to having low progesterone because they don't commonly have regular ovulation. Um, then going into things like, I mean, hyperandrogenism, where you have higher degrees of androgens, but it's not necessarily the androgens that we equate with with strength and performance. A lot of times it's adrenal androgens, um, and your cortisol is also completely high and your progesterone is rock bottom and you're not metabolizing your estrogen. And so there's usually also, um, when you have high degrees of hyperandrogenemia, um, insulin resistance. And so you get female athletes that are insulin bombs. Um, I was one of them. I didn't feel muscle pump till I was like 25 years old, and I was like, "Oh my God, this is what it's supposed to feel like." Because I had to drop my androgens down to be able to feel it. Um, and so, when you've got a high degree of hyperandrommia in conjunction with a high degree of androgens in the female body, the ability to get a muscular pump is incredibly difficult. But they are a workhorse. They are able to do like a three-hour leg workout and not tap out. They're usually having a lot of problems with. Um, weight loss and fat loss, body composition is is very uncontrollable. And they might have a huge degree of water retention within their cycle themselves if they're getting one. Um, And so these are things that are like little markers that make a huge difference when you're aware of them. But unfortunately, the literature on this stuff is shit. Um, And I'm working to get my doctorate out, but gosh, there's not enough hours in the day or days in the week.
3: Uh, thanks a lot, Victoria. That's a fantastic um, explanation. Thanks. Thanks heaps. Oh,
1: you're
0: welcome. Good stuff. Appreciate it. So we've got Vic, Victor. I'm not sure if Victor's question is still there. Victor from Singapore did have a question for us. Um, I'm just taking his pulse to see whether he's still there. Victor. <laughs>
1: Hi.
4: Hi, Victoria. Hello.
1: Hello. Thanks
4: for being on the call. Really appreciate that, and was like all the discussion earlier about uh, your training history, your I mean mm-hmm. the cultural discussion that was really cool. So didn't want to ask any questions then. So I have two questions, and mm-hmm. let's start with the first one. Okay. So I noticed that some female clients, like when it's during the time of the month, they're experiencing cramps. Um, but depending on who, I mean, who they are, different different bodies they experience like different levels of uh, discomfort and some of Mm -hmm. them they they feel like all right so is Mm -hmm. there things that like we should look out for that can help to improve because some Mm -hmm. of them they find that they are immobilized I mean other Mm -hmm. than the eating and sleeping better like is is there Mm -hmm. anything else to to that? Mm -hmm. Mm
1: -hmm. Absolutely so cramps are a sign of systemic inflammation um, so what happens with cramps and cramps actually usually result in a heavier period as well, not always, but, but a lot of the time that there are those two things have been shown to, to relate to each other. And so if you can drop inflammation in the body, you actually can hugely impact, um, how somebody is able to, um, able to experience the cramps. Um, and.
4: Just lost Victoria's audio. Can anyone hear me? Uh, yes, just lost her audio as well.
0: Yeah, it'll be coming back. Um, sorry, Victoria. Yeah, we, lost the
4: audio.
0: we just lost your audio there. I brought you Perfect. back on.
1: Okay, thank you. Okay, I don't know where you guys heard to.
0: Hello? Victor, what, what was the last words you heard, Victor? <laughs>
1: Um, last
4: words that I heard were cramps, like uh, in okay. regards to yeah, in regards <laughs> okay. to uh,
1: I'll start at again. Yeah, so cramps are a sign of systemic inflammation. Um, and so they're typically a sign of that the body is not um, it is not, it's either inflamed or there is something else happening within it, whether that's a gastric issue or a thyroid issue, an adrenal issue, a liver issue. I mean, it could be a host of different systems that aren't working properly. But at their core, cramps are a sign of systemic inflammation. And usually, they also result in a heavier period. Um, those two things have been shown to, to be strongly related to each other. Now, eating has a massive impact on cramps. And so if you an individual can eat more of an anti-inflammatory diet, they can have massive, massive impact on cramps. Huge impact on it. Um, sleep is another big part of it as well, um, and so is just proper digestion. Because what happens is, is that estrogen, um, well, all of our hormones, they have to be able to get out of our bodies. Like we have to be able to metabolize them. Um, and if we don't metabolize and actually excrete out the estrogen, um, a lot of times, as it can recirculate, um, and when it recirculates, then your estrogen goes high and your progesterone goes low because they're like yin and yang and then that's more susceptible to cramps as well so there's lots of different processes behind it but the 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 ability for you to go okay what can i do to help this individual with inflammation um even something as simple as just getting them to like i said to relax (laughs) getting them to do some more type of just basic movement patterns during those times and not doing a crazy amount of volume or load will help because the, the volume and load type of training will cause potentially higher inflammation, which will just kind of make the cramps worse. Um, and I, as much as I hate, I hate that I'm going to say this to you guys, but I'm going to because it's one of the, the secrets of, of cramp management and also menstrual management, is that in the process at the beginning of it, while you're trying to figure out the root cause of the inflammation, which is vital to actually being able to to manage it properly, um, and an anti-inflammatory can have a profound impact on an individual's cramps if it's caught at the very beginning and it's actually been shown to reduce the the flow, the menstrual flow by upwards of a half. So you can cut somebody's like, especially if they have a heavy, heavy flow in half by like 200 milligrams of an anti-inflammatory, which is insane. Um, when I first came across that research, I actually had to go contact the researcher because I was like, this has got to be wrong. I don't believe this. Um it's and you've got to kick the cycle. So if you can kick the cycle, even if it's for one month, you can break that cycle. That will decrease the prostaglandin, which is what's causing the cramping response, down and be able to potentially help them stop having that in the future or have, have a reduction of it. Meanwhile, I mean on the on the flip side is that you have to be trying to figure out what why are the cramps happening in the first place um, and implementing other things to help to manage them, like just the fundamentals of good. Anti-inflammatory eating, being able to have more recovery and relaxation techniques, um, and then if there is something else going on, make sure that they can get paired up with a provider that can help uh, work them, work through that with them.
4: Thanks, Victoria. You mentioned about breaking the cycle. What does mm-hmm. that mean exactly?
1: Yeah. So the cycle of inflammation, and so when you have um, when you have menstrual cramps, um, in particular. Prior to or during ovulation and then also during the menstrual cycle itself there's lots of different reasons that this can be that this can be occurring um, there is a i mean there's a large effect of that this is just like I said that level of inflammation so when inflammation is high in the body, it can happen from lots of different sources. Um, but one of the things that has been found within individuals that have um, irregular cycles or menstrual dysfunction, whether that's heavy periods, whether they don't ovulate, whether it's an irregular cycle, um, is that that high level of inflammation is this very kind of uh, complicated cycle that happens, where your inflammation is high, which is causing your um, causing other systems to get thrown off. But in particular, estrogen is usually high. You're usually more prone to being insulin resistant. Usually, also have um, some type of androgen imbalance. Whether you're creating too much from, I mean, from peripheral fat cells or your adrenal glands, um, and then also progesterone is low, and so you get stuck in this cycle where one causes the other, which impacts the other, which impacts the other. And I mean, if you can try to break that cycle through just dropping down inflammation, um, and that can be something as simple as, like I said, eating more of an anti-inflammatory profile of foods, being able to Work on and even any nutrient deficiencies, getting them to sleep more, getting them to uh, i mean changing training volumes or if fix any underlying maybe injury or issue that they may, they might be having um, if you can break that cycle at the inflammation point that will break your cycle of of, of kind of just dysfunction that's happening around and what's influencing and causing those cramps um, One of the ways I explain this in my own work is I, I explain it as chaos theory. And that, as much as we can try to unravel this kind of convoluted knot, we never really can. Uh, we can, we can postulate, we can hypothesize, but we, re- we never really can. And so it's just trying to pick one thing to work on that's within your not only like your scope of practice, but also within your abilities, um, which the inflammation is the easiest one to to target and to work through. Oh, that's really insightful.
4: And I was wondering if there's like any um, dietary supplements that you might recommend, like instead of using an anti-inflammatory, and of course, um, if, if they already fixed up their uh,
1: diet, by eating, hmm. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. Well, so it's such a hard question because I'm like, ah, I don't give supplement advice because it's just so it's so complicated. But, um, I mean, the 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 basics of it are is that something like, I mean, something like a really good omega profile, um, where you have, uh, actually one of the best ones is GLA. So it's in like bronze oil, uh, evening primrose isn't quite as bioavailable, but that's actually been shown to greatly improve the prostaglandin response in women. Um, and it, it has to be a little bit higher, it's about 2000 milligrams of it. Um, but that actually can have a profound impact in conjunction with like omega-3 and omega-6. Um, the, the, the GLA is like this hidden gem, especially for women that have menstrual dysfunction. Um, I mean, a, a, a proper formula bioavailable uh, curcumin can also. But with that being said, when a female has menstrual dysfunction, something as simple as magnesium, uh, a tri-blend um, of bioavailable forms can also have huge impacts on Inflammation and also just the the other processes within the body. Uh, Vitamin B has also been shown by research to be usually uh, depleted, especially for individuals that are on something like an oral contraceptive agent. Vitamin B is one of the most leached nutrients from the pill alone. Vitamin C is also quite uh, low, as well as magnesium. Um, There's a couple other ones that do also get leached as as from the nutrient level. Uh, So those are incredibly fruitful. Vitamin D is, I mean, vitamin D, I think is like the the wonder supplement that, that people don't give enough credit to. Finally, there's starting to be more recognition of it. But I mean, the, the studies that have been done with this with women that have hormonal issues is phenomenal, absolutely phenomenal. But one of the important things to remember is that it has to be paired with vitamin K and especially uh, vitamin MK7 um, because of the ability for Vitamin D to be able to deposit and to be able to actually work with the calcium within the bones, um, and so vitamin D though is is hugely hugely important. Low levels of vitamin D, vitamin D deficiency have been um, have been shown to be quite pronounced in individuals that have inflammation, especially like inflammatory based menstrual dysfunction.
4: Oh, thank you. That's that was actually a lot. <laughs> and uh now to my fourth question, so I kind of cheated mm-hmm. with two other questions in. Okay. Yeah, so how differently would you train like um someone who's going through like different parts of um their natural cycle? Like because like earlier on you mentioned that mm-hmm. uh sometimes if like this uh pressure is high, like mm-hmm. they will be uh pliable, stuff like that. So mm-hmm. how would you offer their training?
1: Mm-hmm. To be honest, I wouldn't. Um that's the most uh, that's the, the the i can't put it any more simply than that because it depends on the individual um getting to know your individual that you're working with and actually working with her body is far superior to to going straight into head first into this like training for around your menstrual cycle if an individual say has a higher degree of pelvic um, inflammation that happens around their cycle which This sometimes can just be more a genetic. This can be sometimes because they just have a really small pelvis. This can be caused because of other sources of inflammation, um, menstrual dysfunction, things like like endometriosis, whatever it might be. But that individual, if they have a high degree of pelvic inflammation and and that heavy feeling in their pelvic floor, logically, are they going to want to squat really heavy? Probably not because the pressure is already there. They're not going to have the same degree of, I mean, just control or ability to breathe and to brace. And so are they going to have the best workout either? Probably not. But unless you talk to them and find out what's going on, you're not going to be able to, to learn that stuff. So that's where something like even just getting them to, I mean, start tracking certain markers, but also just talking. And figuring out, okay, like, I mean, when I talk about pelvic floor issues that happen with menstrual cycles, or even just with the female body as we age, um, a lot of times strength coaches are like, holy shit, what is this? This Is it crazy? I've never heard of this before. But that's because the research is so shallow on it. Um, But I can, I can honestly, um, I don't know if you have all men on the phone or on the calls right now, but talk to your female clients about that. Ask them, do you feel pressure in your pelvic floor at certain times of your menstrual cycle? And I, I, hate the word guarantee, and I hate to guarantee, but uh, there is probably going to be more than one individual that you work with that says yes. Um, And so that is, I mean, that's huge. Or if even that individual has a heavy period, are they gonna wanna do a ton of lower body heavy movements? Probably not, especially not if she's worried about also, you know, like potentially bleeding through. That's, I mean, that's a social concern. It's something that has to be addressed on a much, much bigger scale. Um, But those are things that you understand from talking to the individual. Understanding like, um, I mean, with the the first uh, question about, okay, well, my athlete feels a little bit more fatigued at certain times. Well, can you track that on a 30-day cycle? Can you track that on a 35-day cycle? And if so, and if you can see that repeated maybe for two to three months, figuring out what's the underlying root of it, and then how can you or should you be even addressing it? Women and men have hormonal cycles that happen believe it or not just because men don't have periods doesn't mean that their hormones are stagnated and just totally static throughout the month there is highs and lows all of us have highs and lows Um, even with the women's body itself, it does not have to have a perfect 28 day period. And women most often don't have a perfect 28 day period. I mean, the variance is anywhere between 17 to 40 something days. And that's on a population of the gen pop that's not female athletes. Um, The female athlete menstrual cycle is incredibly dynamic, incredibly, to the point that they cannot get data on this stuff, because it's so dynamic. And it depends on what their total stress is on their body. So I think for, I mean, I know I'm not really answering your question per se, but talking to your individuals and finding out just how they feel, how they even, how, what their knowledge is of their own menstrual cycle, and then giving them tools to start to to understand and to work together to optimize and to, to, to perform throughout that. Um, and, and being informed. I mean, one of my biggest things about being a researcher is that I want to create like this critical consciousness. Um, but I have to be able to do that with the individual themselves as well as with the coach. Because if the coach has all the knowledge, that's not going to help the athlete. Or if the athlete has all the knowledge, that's not going to help the coach. You guys are in a relationship together.
4: Thank you. That was really, really insightful. And I
1: hope to see your research papers pretty soon. Oh, thank you. So oh, I hope they come out pretty soon. Let's see what the the peer reviewers say.
0: Excellent work. Okay, so we, we we really are over time, but if Mark had a question, I want to rec- recognize him for being yeah. here. So, Mark, you are on self mute and you're the one that didn't know what your button was. So, I see there is, um, here we go, is movement at the station. We'll give him about 15 seconds to unmute himself if he had a question, otherwise. Okay, looks like we'll move to the wrap mark. Sorry, I'm just not seeing your response. Oh, Victoria, I get the feeling mm-hmm.
1: that
0: the coaches could talk to you all day long.
1: I, I feel like they could too. <laughs> I, I forget that sometimes, I mean, I'm a researcher that reaches out of my basement I'm by myself for usually hours and hours and hours and days on end. So I forget that there's such a, a need for more conversation.
0: Absolutely, I think you've got an insight from this small group that you're on. You're on a good thing. It's a it's a market that hasn't been addressed adequately, as you know, and it hasn't been mm. has been filled. So you've got a you've got a great niche ahead of you there. And and I just want to thank you on behalf of all our coaches, and in fact, everybody moving forward, listening to this podcast down the track for your contribution, your time. You've been very patient with the coaches, and you so said we've been going for about an hour and a half. Well, so I, thank I really you appreciate so
1: much. No, I, I appreciate honestly. This has been an honor to be on. Um, absolute honor, and I will pass along the menstrual cycle tracker. That's Geraldine Pryor's work. Um, it's got a, it's got a kind of a key along to it that helps you actually be able to understand it. Um, and then I, th- with that is like their, her website. It's uh, the Center for Menstrual Ovulation Health. Um, it's got a ton of resources on that. There's some stuff that I, I, I will say because I've talked to her about athletes. It's missing athlete perspective on it completely. Um, but it does give some great understanding of just the basics of how to how to help and work with women throughout their life course too, knowing that they have things like puberty and menopause and I mean, postpartum and all this other stuff. So um, it's not perfect. It doesn't have a ton of information that I'm sure I could dive into for days with your coaches, but um, it, it's at least a, it's a start for them.
0: Well, you're going to be a great resource moving forward and so I appreciate you bringing your work to the marketplace and look forward to learning from you and being able to connect you to the world of coaches in the decades moving forward. So we will be in touch. I know
1: that. Absolutely. Thank you so much, Ian.
0: So I've already received messages from very happy people on the call. Awesome. you've, You've really hit the, Hit the nail on the head with this one, uh, Victoria. Done a phenomenal job for me to get the positive feedback even before the call is even finished. So. Oh,
1: that, that makes me so happy. Thank you, guys. <laughs> this is on, on, this is why I do what I do. Um, it's uh, it's absolutely speaks to every every fiber of me as an individual is, is this type of work. So I'm so grateful grateful to be on the show.
0: Absolutely, and and uh, you know, a friend of friend of Ken is our friend for, uh, for everybody. So yeah, we appreciate that connection also.
1: Awesome. Thank you so much, Ian.
0: Well, coaches, appreciate your presence, and, uh, and we appreciate Victoria. It looks like she's going to be coming back. Victoria, we will be in touch. I, I know that. Okay.
1: And okay. I got, I got some research for you too, so I'll, uh, I'll send that along.
0: Absolutely. Absolutely. I'm, I'm just not sure how much of my work you're familiar with, but um, I'll see if I can hook you up with some of that as well.
1: Oh, awesome. Thank you.
0: Actually, coaches, as much as it hurts, we are going to wrap. Um, This would have to stand as the longest podcast we've ever done, and that's a reflection of the the value of the the content that Victoria's brought to the call. So thank you. Thanks, everybody. We'll chat.